This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hi, my name is Jill Gorman-Round, and I'm the CEO of Keir Weiss. And what I love about beauty, and have always loved about beauty, ever since being a little girl, is that it's dynamic and energetic and exciting, and it changes all the time, and it's for everybody. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Hi, this is Abby Wallach for Beauty Is Your Business, and I'm here with my adorable co-host, Karen Moon. Hello, everyone. So it's great to be here with Jill. Jill, it's so fantastic to see you. You look wonderful. (laughs) Thank you. So do you. This is quite the setup, ladies. I'm so impressed. Thank you. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show and to dig into your background and talk a little bit about where you've been on your journey in beauty and where you are today. So let's go back in time a little bit and have you share the history of how you got into beauty and what you were doing, because we originally met when you were running the incubator. We were at an M&A conference and somehow I found you and we connected. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that and the model of where the incubator is at today and how it all came together for you. Okay, so I suppose to go back to the beginning, I have been in and around beauty my entire career, having thought I wanted to be an investment banker at university, thinking that it would be terribly glamorous and surrounded by good-looking men in great suits and fabulous women and, and exciting and applied for positions in investment banking and didn't get any. And so going into my fourth year at university, thought, what is it that actually I love and what is it that I really want to do every day? And my mother was a fashion buyer. My father worked for Guinness and Diageo and so consumer goods and beauty and fashion have always been in my life. And I have always loved beauty. And so I took some internships with Procter & Gamble and I did lots of work experience and then applied to L'Oreal and was accepted onto the graduate training scheme with my first day at L'Oreal being September the 27th, 1999. And in those days, you didn't apply to a specific division, at least not in the UK. You just applied to your category of work, so marketing or sales or finance, and I applied to marketing. And there were 12 graduate trainees in my year, and we all sat around a table in Kensington Church Street offices, going back in the day, and were told what divisions we were going to. And I was going into coiffure, which I was like, oh, I thought I'd go to luxury. Yeah, I thought I was a luxury girl. And actually, it was the most brilliant thing in the world, and I was sent out into the field to become a sales and territory manager for what is now known as the Professional Products Division of L'Oreal, which is, was then Coiffeur. And that is where you learn. I mean, you learn about marketing, about sales, about personalities when you're selling to individual hairdressers and trying to open new salons. And from there, I came back into the office at L'Oreal in the UK. I worked on marketing brands like Techniart and Surrey Expert and L'Oreal Professionnel. And then I ran the marketing for Kerastase in the UK and from there I leapt from coiffure to 
luxury, which was very unusual in those days, and went to work on Lancôme and then Biotherm, left L'Oreal, went to Yves Saint Laurent Beauté to be their head of marketing in the UK. They moved me to New York at the beginning of 2007, thought we'd be here for two years. All these years later, still here, still clinging on to New York. L'Oreal bought Yves Saint Laurent Beauté from the Gucci group. So I am, if nothing else, the career example of never go through a door backwards because you never know what happens later in your career. It doesn't matter in what territory you're in. And I went on to lead the marketing for Longcom in the US, which was a privilege. Left beauty for a few years, went into media and went to Condé Nast. I really wanted to learn about content and how the consumer journey was changing. Consulted for myself for a couple of years and sort of have built up this weird and unusual skill set of being a classically trained marketer at L'Oreal, which is the school of marketing I think we recognize and understood about content and digital and, and what works and what doesn't. Consulted for myself and then discovered that I'm a terrible consultant. I'm good at the work, but just I love the art. That. That's but I'm so a terrible, funny. terrible <laughs> consultant because actually to be a great consultant, you have to be really good at selling yourself and you have to be really good at telling people what you can do for them. And I don't know whether it's a British thing or a female thing or it's a me thing, but I, the idea of that is just, it's slightly nauseous for me. And so I thought, right, I need to go back. And I really miss being part of teams and leading teams and being part of that amazing culture when you're with people and working on projects for long periods of time. And I was lucky enough to meet Debbie Perlman, who was then at McAndrews and Forbes, the single largest shareholder of Revlon. And they were looking to create an incubator on behalf of Revlon and McAndrews and Forbes. And I joined that to lead that. And that's where we met, Abby, at one of those conferences. And, and, yes. and the rest is history. And obviously, Revlon changed leadership. Debbie became the CEO of Revlon, which is fantastic. And I actually think she doesn't get the credit for this that she deserves as being the first female CEO of a publicly traded beauty company. I mean, that really is an extraordinary thing. And mm. so late in the day, but that's another story. And we pivoted my role because Revlon really had to concentrate on other things. So I moved away from the incubator and took on the responsibility for the professional division. So I was back to coiffeur for a few years running brands like American Crew and CND globally, as well as touching other projects as well, more in the incubator fashion. Yes, and then in December I was, oh, in November I was uh, offered this amazing opportunity to take the next stage in my career and, and move to Kia Weiss as CEO. So that's probably rather too long a description of everything, but it's just funny how beauty, everything comes around. You start in coiffeur, which becomes professional, you do another stint there, you're a luxury girl, you step out of the business, but you come back. Beauty draws you back, I think. I love your story. It's very inspiring and so much fun. And I love that you're so honest that you're a terrible oh, consultant. Oh, terrible consultant. I don't understand that role either. So I totally hear you. But I just think you've had such an incredible journey. And for people listening to hear the momentum and the, the journey that you've been on, it's, it's very interesting. And that's really what brings you to where you're at today. I'd love to dig in a little bit on the incubator side about what's happening in the beauty industry, because mm. right now there are so many incubators. And, and since you were in that role, and I think that was when we had met, you know, it was very fascinating to me that the big companies were finally starting to incubate smaller brands. What's your point of view on the landscape? Because it is an interesting model that's happening right now in a big way. 
It, it is. Interestingly enough, I hear less and less about big companies incubating small brands because it is very, very difficult for the big companies to have a division or to have a channel within their business, which essentially works at odds to the rest of their business. Because big companies, and I am a huge fan, I'm a L'Oreal baby, and I respect that world enormously. Big companies do things in big companies' ways, and little companies succeed, at least at the beginning of their journey, by absolutely not doing the same thing. You know, there are no established supply chains. There are no established regulatory protocols. It's all really asking for forgiveness, not permission. It's making decisions, flying by the seat of your pants. And, and big companies want to be able to do that, but it really is kind of at odds. It's a very interesting tension to where they are. And I remember sitting in a conversation with somebody <laughs> saying, what do you mean they can launch a brand in six months? And I'm like, yeah, they can launch a brand in six months. They're like, good Lord, we haven't finished scheduling the meetings in six months. And you're like, yeah, that's the difference, right? And so I think incubation is slightly morphing in the sense that there are lots of sort of funds out there, whether they're VC-backed or they're independent investor-backed, which are bringing together brands and companies, little companies, cross-channel, cross-functionally, to put them all in a sort of a garage somewhere and say, right, you know, share experience, off you go, we're going to give you some money, we're going to give you some runway. And then, of course, when they get to a size, if they make it, because success is not guaranteed in our industry, and we focus and we hear a lot about extraordinary success stories and we don't really hear about the people that worked really really hard and had a brilliant idea but for whatever reason it didn't happen it didn't work out for them but in the case that it does suddenly those businesses reach a scale and you know they're quite attractive for people coming in wanting to buy some equity and putting some investment in and then maybe taking a majority share and then maybe then they're right for a strategic or a big PE firm to buy so I think the whole idea of the big companies doing that themselves at least I'm not familiar right now with who's doing that really well. I think that idea has really shifted into different pods of incubation, largely venture backed. And of course, then lots of people just going it alone. Lots of people starting their own businesses and, and going it alone and networking and, and working every hour that God sends to see if they can do it without that construct or even safety net of a big organization. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's so many people. What's so interesting today, there are no barriers to entry anymore. None. You know, and, and even if you have an idea, I mean, the fact that you can just try, right? Try and see if it works. Not, you know, there's something to be said about creating a business because we're from the industry. We see the big, big potential. And of course, where's the exit strategy? But there's so many people out there who could start a business and make a good living and actually have an annuity and build something where, you know, maybe it's serving a different multicultural market or there's so much potential potential and opportunity. I just see a lot of interesting, and Karen and I interview so many cool people with a vision and an idea, and it's just fascinating to see, and it's people like you who've been in the corporate world who, you know, led the charge, but can also be such an inspiration too for those people, because it's important to have all areas of the business. It really is. And I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right about the barriers to entry being almost reduced. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to be able to produce product and that in and of itself is not easy. And you've got to be able to have enough money to bring that product to market and you've got to have a website to be able to sell it on. Right. And then 
You know, it's not Rome, it's not build it and they will come. You've got to be able to get people to that website. And so the barriers still exist. They are just materially reduced to where they used to be. And actually, in our lifetimes, it's in the blink of an eye that these barriers have, have been reduced. It really, really is. I mean, I hate to age myself. I mean, I'm 44, 45 this, this autumn. And when I started work in 1999, we didn't have an external email address. We didn't have, I, mean, I remember my first girlfriend from university, she got her Blackberry when she was a banker. And we thought, oh my God, that's so exciting. She's got a Blackberry, she must be really, really important. And I think now most of us would really happily hand our cell phones back because we're on 24 seven. But if you just think about that, that's not even three decades. And we have just changed the way that we buy, that we research, that we sell, that we educate all of these functions. And that does mean that people with a great idea and with the tenacity to do it have a chance, whereas they wouldn't have been able to do that 20, 10 years ago, because unless you were able to get a wholesale arrangement with a retailer, unless you were able to find the working capital to be able to fund that, the chances are it wasn't going to work for you. Unless you went a completely different route, like a pyramid selling route or a parties at home route. And of course, there have been fabulous businesses born that way as well. So Jill, like, I'm just curious, like there's so many different types of incubators and stuff like that now. What have you seen become like successful? Like what's the new playbook, right? And, and I guess the best are the brands that continually break the playbook. I mean, because you've been in the legacy industry for so long and it's interesting, like, so it's actually two questions tied together potentially. So like how are brands thinking differently, but really it comes down to talent. And so thinking about coming out of a legacy, traditional corporate matrix infrastructure to then really working with innovators and, you know, being on the forefront of that. I'm just curious how you thought about that and identifying talent to start a brand, but also then, you know, what is the talent you see like early versus late? Because I think a lot of people are transitioning to like, opportunities at indie brands and it's always about finding the right fit so just curious like what you feel like is a secret sauce and some almost like case studies you think are interesting that could be helpful to our audience I think the playbook changes every day and I think that anybody who professes to be an expert in it is talking absolute rubbish because consumer behavior changes playbook changes there are some things that are constant now in terms of social media but the nuances of that, the algorithms, what's working, what isn't working changes on a daily basis. And so I think the key thing in terms of talent is to be nimble. You have to have the humility, frankly, that we perhaps didn't need to have as an industry with a more traditional playbook to be like, all right, well, that didn't work, on to the next. And that's a very different thing to have in a bigger organization than in a smaller organization, right? It's possibly easier to fail and fail fast in a smaller organization than a bigger organization because it's just more culturally, I suppose, recognize that these things happen in smaller organizations because big organizations don't fail, right? How could they if they have a market cap of X and they're trading on the, the NASDAQ or, or the Paribas at, at Y? So as you think about all of these things coming together, I think, Karen, if I may, the question here is, what is the differential in talent between big and small organizations and how does that impact smaller organizations or bigger organizations going forward? There is definitely a trend that I see of established talent wanting to perhaps move out of very established firms into startups. 
And there is also a significant trend of young people entering the industry who are less concerned about their first or second job being with a big name. And I think that is a generational shift. You know, if I think about my generation, you know, we knew we would never stay with one company for our lives, but the first one and two that we worked for probably felt from a resume perspective needed to be big names so you could say about the graduate training scheme. I think that's possibly less relevant now, although I would personally advocate, and I have two kids, that a great graduate training scheme at a big company is absolutely life-changing and can set you up brilliantly. So I think it becomes a very personal thing as opposed to a standardized thing. As you think about established talent coming out or wanting a change from a big company, a big strategic structure, you know, there are lots of considerations with that. What you get there with people are extraordinary rigor and amazing experience in terms of processes and protocols and best practices And it's absolutely phenomenal. What you can sometimes have, particularly if they haven't worked on little brands within big companies, because actually there are lots of little brands within big companies which are far more entrepreneurial. But if they haven't had that that experience, there can sometimes be a lack of flexibility. So for somebody coming out of a big company structure at a director or a VP level, they really need to think about, well, how flexible am I? How open-minded am I about doing things in a different way? And frankly, you know, sometimes ripping up the piece of paper and starting again within the hour. For younger people coming into the industry, I think they're very compelled by being part of a journey and a story and perhaps a success story and much less concerned about being part of something that might or might not work because it's just all boots on the ground experience. And I think that's absolutely marvelous. But what sometimes that means in a small company structure is if you have lots of people who haven't had a lot of experience is that you suddenly find yourself as your business is ramping not having the right expertise in place. And that can be detrimental to small businesses. And I think as you tie that back to incubating businesses that suddenly start to scale, there is a pivotal moment where you need to look at that business and go, okay, everybody here is truly committed. Everybody here has woven their story into the fabric of our business. But who here has the skills? And it's sometimes in the very unexciting areas that we don't give enough airtime to as an industry like supply chain, finance, demand planning, freight, logistics, all of those areas, regulatory, legal, where all of a sudden overnight, if you're about to go into big business with a big retailer, these things are really, really important. Because if you don't launch the product on the day you say you're going to launch it on your own D2C, ah, nobody knows. If you don't ship it on the day that Sephora or Nordstrom or Boots expect it, you're in big trouble. So there is this really interesting nuanced exercise around talent, which is what's right at the right time for the business, while I think always being true to the ethos of the founder or of the business and why it started. If your business, like ours at Keir Weiss, you know, one of our, we have two pillars which are entirely not business oriented at all. They are thoughtfulness and kindness, right? Now, we don't go around talking about those things all day, but we really hope to act in those ways, not just to our consumers, but to each other as a culture. So I look very carefully at people within the interview process and go, okay, you might be extraordinarily talented. You might be a wonderfully dynamic individual, but are you thoughtful? And do I think you'll be kind? Because if you 
bring all of these amazing talents, but you can't morph into the rest of the culture, then there's going to be a bad fit. And that doesn't help anybody. Yeah, and I think so, Sharon. I think there's so many people that like now, you know, coming from the startup world from legacy or whatever that are always like asking the question of, and you know, just seeing these transitions. I think that could be helpful for a lot of people thinking about shifts and even like entering beauty. So that's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I think you're so right about especially human capital and the way our culture and how quickly things are moving. And I think all being the world being home for as long as we yes. have been, which is just another whole conversation, it has put things top of mind in a way like has never been before. And my hope as someone who is a you know creator and innovator in beauty is doing things that are meaningful and purposeful and with kindness and passion and purpose in a way that everyone can participate. But I'm curious about the culture that you're building at, you know, for the brand. And I love what you're sharing because not everyone will fit that mold. And I don't want to use the word cult, but you're creating a community, right, on the inside, which will reflect on the outside. So how are you doing that? And what are the talents and the vibe that you get from people when you interview, like, how do you know? Well, you've been around a while, yeah. so, have, so have we, but, you know, how do you know? Is it, do you go with your gut? Is it, you know, a thorough process? Give us a little insight, because that could be helpful for people as they're building their businesses and their brands in this world today. I think it's a great question, and it was certainly important to me at this stage in my career having wanted to take on the challenge of a true CEO position, a true leadership role, having led divisions and and brands previously, but never been ultimately the person in charge. It was very much part of my career plan to do that, but it also became, or my career aspiration, I should say, to do that. But it also became very clear to me that the way I wanted to do that and in the culture that I wanted to do that was almost as important as the job itself. And in fact, sometimes more important. And I think that what... I have found and I have been so lucky is to have the privilege of being invited to become the first CEO of Keir Weiss outside of our founder, Kirsten. And Kirsten started our brand 10 years ago and it started from a place of her own personal point of view, as often happens with founders. And her personal point of view as a much lauded editorial makeup artist, was that there was a gap in beauty. There was a need, a consumer need, and indeed the planet had a need for beautiful products, very, very high performance. I mean, absolutely exceeds customer expectations, but that was both certified organic and manufactured in a responsible way, but was also further responsible to the planet in terms of our packaging and to be sustainable. And by that, we mean refillable or recyclable or recycled. And so why do these things tie together? They tie together because I have the great privilege of stepping into a culture that was established through the vision of a very singular and beautiful human being who fought hard to bring her vision to life you know, starting 11 or 12 years ago, where so many labs around the world laughed at her and said, you cannot get high performance certified organic in color. 
What do you mean you want it to be refillable? That's ridiculous. No one will ever go for that. So she had to fight so hard. And she herself, Kirsten, is an extraordinarily intelligent and thoughtful, very kind, very deliberate individual. So frankly, the culture that we are working in and that is my responsibility to continue to build with her is one that is her vision, right? We're not trying to recalibrate something. We're trying to enhance something. And very interesting conversation to say, well, how do you do that and be successful in business? Because we are in a business and our job fundamentally is to sell things and to sell more things tomorrow than we did today to more people that haven't heard of the brand and to get those people that have heard the brand and bought back again. So how do you bring together and how do you live harmoniously this very beautiful, very thoughtful culture with sales and making tough business decisions? And sometimes those business decisions are about people where someone has been fantastic in the business, but their skill set may not fit moving further on. Or they themselves might want a change, right? And you've come to rely on them because you're a small company. And I think this ties into the fact that you have to interview every single person on their own merit. The last thing that I would ever want is to have a bunch of clones working in a team because I think that that is terribly dull, for one, and second, not very good for the business because you don't get diversity of ideas. So every single person has to be interviewed on their own merit and you're really looking to say, do we think you have the capability to be a great business person, to make smart decisions, to tackle the hard problems, to be unafraid of the difficult conversations, because lots of people are afraid of difficult conversations. And if you have a culture which is kind and thoughtful, it may seem that that difficult conversations, but in fact, our attitude to that is kindness is also having the difficult conversations so that you're honest, so that you're not brushing things under the carpet. And it has been tough. I've got to tell you, I am a people person. And I was um, watching the Wall Street Journal CEO Summit, a little snippets of it earlier this week. And Jamie Dimon said, I'm ready to throw my computer out the window and I'm cancelling Zoom. And I thought, you know what? I don't blame you because particularly when you're interviewing people, not being able to sit in a room with them, get a sense of who they are, their being, their energy is really, really hard. That said, thank God for technology. But it really is, as you think about bringing talent into the organization and meshing that with the culture, these things are not mutually exclusive. To be a great business person and to have great business potential does not mean that you cannot be kind and thoughtful and generous. These things can absolutely mesh together. International. Today, we are buzzing about the steps to take your brand international. The global beauty industry is valued at roughly $532 billion. That is billion with a B, and that is big. And it's forecasted to grow to $800 billion by 2025. I'm Denise Dente. And I'm Jessica Quick. And we're the founders of Buzz Beauty and the authors of Whip Fire Money, a book we wrote to help beauty brands go international. 
we know taking your brand international is a big step and we want to help you do it right. Denise, can we give them a few tips on what to do when they look to expand? Look, I know it sounds obvious, but have a budget, have some money set aside to grow your international business. It might be surprising how much you might need to be able to grow at the rate you want to. The second is make sure that your formula and your packaging is regulatory compliant. Yes, and this means that your product will need to be compliant in every market you plan on doing business in. This may mean you end up with different types of packaging or even formula to be compliant. Boy, that's the truth. Also, we've got to keep in mind the channels of distribution and know where we want to sell our product internationally. International. I love this topic. If you love it and you want to keep buzzing with us, visit buzzbeauty.com or check out our book at whipfiremoney.com. Do you think as we come out of COVID and the world starts to re-enter, do you think people's perspectives and thought processes will be different in the work environment, in business, behind the desk, building companies? Because you're looking at it from a very unique point of view, and it's so refreshing to hear, and it's very hopeful, because that's what it should be. I am hopeful. I also know that as a race of people, we have very short memories. And so, look, if you think about consumer behavior, what we're seeing at the moment is an absolute acceleration of what we were seeing prior to the pandemic in terms of adoption of digital. And every single person that you've spoken to will have talked about this. You know, what was happening in terms of the migration to digital consumption was accelerated through the pandemic. And frankly, we're all now used to convenience. We're used to this idea that I can take my time, I can do it my way, and I can have it here tomorrow, this afternoon, the day after. I don't think that's going anywhere. That said, I see a physical need for great physical retail and bricks and mortar. And I think the stores and the retailers that can really get their act together and welcome people back into an environment that is beautifully merchandised and clean and well-serviced will do very well. But I really think it's back to Retail 101. I do think it is running the finger over the tester unit to check for dust at the beginning of the day, which I think is an art that, frankly, was a little lost over the last 10 or 15 years in physical retail. I also think if you think about consumption habits, not just in terms of platform of purchase, but I think a consumer has become much more conscious of what they are purchasing. And some of that has been financial necessity, obviously, over the course of the last 18 months. And some of that has been a recalibration of need and saying, do I need to buy this? And what am I doing if I buy this? And I think health, I think what we're doing for our planet are certainly much further up the consideration purchase than they have been in the past. And I liken it candidly, Abby and Karen, to the way that we have approached our diets over the last decade, where, you know, we started to buy organic eggs free-range eggs because we didn't want to see the chickens in the cages. And then that transferred into organic dairy. And all of a sudden you were buying, if you had kids, you were buying organic milk. And then that sort of flooded into the rest of the family. And then we were concerned about 
pesticides and organic vegetables and fruit where it's possible to afford that. And we're concerned about responsible farming, responsible fishing, etc. And I think that we're seeing that in beauty as well. I really think that this idea of responsibility of I'm buying this, am I going to use it as opposed to buying it for it to sit in a shoebox in the back of the cupboard. I think that's really, really important. The joy of actually using a product and using it to the end rather than getting bored in a couple of days. I think that's really at the forefront. And I do think that where we're positioned as a brand, as certified organic, and I use those words very deliberately because lots of people can claim natural or clean or organic, and that's not regulated. But certified organic is regulated. We're regulated by CCPB in Italy or Cosmos EcoCert across the rest of Europe. And we can talk to our customers about exactly what's in our products and how they're farmed and how our beeswax is different to any other. I think that's really important to people, the narrative of that. So it's a very long-winded answer, I'm sorry. But I think that the way that we shop has ultimately changed to be proportionately online but physical retail will always have a place if it's excellent. But our thought process about what we shop and why we shop for it is evolving and will continue to evolve. And frankly, that's a beautiful place for us as a brand. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing. I'm, I'm curious, like, can you share for our listeners like where the business is at today mm. and kind of the vision of what's next? You know, it's like what retailers and stuff like that. I know sure. it's like a, a fave at Credo so, and, you know, certainly can find it. But there's sometimes I wish we had video because the product is just stunning. Like it's like packaging where you like want to show it and like very Instagrammable, but it's just like really beautiful, beautiful product. Well, I'm so pleased you say that, Karen, because a lot of the times when people think about certified organic or even natural products, they think that it's going to be a little bit of a disappointing experience because there has to be a compromise. And this is where Kirsten's amazing commitment to design and designing our packaging with Mark Atlan, it is absolutely beautiful. It is a jewel. And of course, it's all refillable. So you, you buy that and then you just refill it and you have it and it is a joy to use and it's, and it's heavy and gorgeous and luxury. And that's really, really important. And the business is in wonderful shape, I'm delighted to say. I mean, obviously, we have faced the same challenges as every other beauty or consumer goods brand in the world over the last 18 months, with physical distribution being closed for at least three months at a time, sometimes longer. And of course, we do have some distribution in Europe. And France is still on a lockdown right now, so doors aren't open there. So that's a challenge we've shared with the rest of the industry. But we have a very small selective distribution. We are in North America, in Blue Mercury, in Credo and in, in Detox. We have a very small distribution with Nordstrom. We're just uh, working through that with them. Netta Porter and then beautiful independent doors. So it's a very limited distribution and we are now you know, proportionately digital. Our direct consumer business has absolutely flourished and in the right way you know our average order value is is above $80 our conversion is above 3% we have a 30% return rate on the quarter of people coming back and buying again and so we have a very very exciting time in our business and we're seeing tremendous growth in all channels which I'm obviously extremely thrilled about and in terms of what's next What's next is to continue to build out our, our digital presence. We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do socially, to tell our story, to engage with influencers, to really, I often say that those that know Keir Weiss love Keir Weiss 
but there's not that many people that know and that's starting to change so we've got to do that job really beautifully and then we will consider new distribution as it presents itself which it is I'm thrilled with the inbound interest in every market and we'll consider that if it's right for us and right for them and that we can be really productive there and we will continue to focus on really beautiful innovation I mean we've won five awards so far this year for our innovation and we're bringing so thank you I'm I mean I literally I started in December so this is Kirsten's yeah. credit um, no, this is the I team's mean, credit yeah, that's great I mean it's, it's also just like I think she was so early in her vision and thankfully like thought leaders in moving sustainability forward and you know creating a new standard are getting rewarded for that so there's more education to the rest of the industry and that it could be possible to build a scalable brand so that's super exciting uh, Karen you're absolutely right. I often say that the industry is beginning to catch up with Kirsten in terms of sustainability. And that is a wonderful thing. I mean, they're beginning. It's not anywhere near where we are. But that's a wonderful thing because that's the right thing for the planet and that's the right thing for consumers. So a rising tide lifts all boats in that area. And she absolutely is the pioneer. And candidly, I don't think gets enough credit for that. Mm. Such a great story, really. Congratulations. And we wish you so much success as you continue on this journey. You know, it takes seven to 10 years just to make a mark, right? It's not (laughs) always. And then to make a change. So it really is the journey and getting to a place, you know, to scale something. So very exciting, Jill. So happy for you. Culture starts at the top, and great customer experience, the only competitive strategy in today's world, is fueled by great leadership. We hear and read this every day, but many brands don't drive customer-first strategy. For those at the top who want to make that leap but don't know how, we'll learn from leaders who share what you must do to become customer-centric. I am Liliana Petrova, and this is The One Thing. The One Thing, Customer Experience from the Top, is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever the best podcasts are found. And now, it's Hitting the Pan. So it's at this point in the show where we would love to get to know you on a more personal level. And we spin this proverbial salon chair, but we're, I don't know, we're home. So I'm going to spin. I love the proverbial salon chair. That's where I started. I love it. it. All right. So let's spin the proverbial (laughs) salon chair and it is going to land on Karen. Okay. So what's your guilty pleasure? Oh, my husband's gin and tonics, but I don't feel guilty. (laughs) Do you guys get fancy and put like juniper and like different things? It is a process. It involves a lot of fresh squeezed lime. It involves gin from the freezer, involves a very specific type of tonic, and it involves arriving at six o'clock on the dot. Otherwise, you know, the evening does not, the evening does not transition. Uh, I'll be there. (laughs) Yeah, when are we all meeting to have these gin and tonics? It sounds amazing. Oh, then we have to invite April from Bleach's daughter, and then we'll like have like a whole thing. Yeah, exactly. 
Do you know April? Yes. I've been on calls. Oh, okay. So we've been a whole, we did a whole segment on gin. Yes, you have to connect. She's all into the gin, all these different yeah. kinds. But you, you asked if that was a guilty pleasure. And for me, it's not guilty. It's just a pleasure. <laughs> I don't, I don't really uh, have guilty pleasures. I think I've got to the point good. in my life where I'm like, oh, God, I enjoy it. I'm going to do it. I don't deserve it. I don't really. Now I'm thinking about happy hour. I can't wait. Oh, you're so cute. All right, so I'm going to spin the proverbial cilantro again, and it's going to land on me. So, Jill, now that you've been working so hard all year, and that seems to be the case for everybody just plowing through and working diligently, I think it's kept us all going, right? But you also have a few children. Yes. I know. I know they're probably around while you're doing your thing like mine. I have a bunch of them running around. Where and what will you do when you can start to travel? Oh, I, this is the easiest thing in the world. This is the question that is so easy. We have not been home to the UK now in two years. And I haven't seen my family apart from on a screen since December of 2019. So... The first thing we will do is try and get to the UK with the children to see family. And that will either become immediately before or immediately after, dependent on quarantine and and all of those things, to a holiday that we are taking with some of our best friends where we have all hired villas on the island of Paxos. And we were all due to be there last summer for a great friend's significant birthday And we have all postponed our villas because obviously last summer was no one was going anywhere. And so I am very excited. I mean, ridiculously excited. Wake up in the middle of the night excited about going to Europe, hanging out with family and spending a week on the island of Paxos in the sum with some great friends and just laughing and drinking and enjoying ourselves and I hope everybody listening to this has at least one great summer plan because I don't think any of us have done anything but work or juggle kids and remote schooling or elder care or whatever it is it's been so tough and it doesn't matter who you are and what what situation you're in if you're single and you've been living on your own that's been torture or if you've been at home with the kids or you've been going through a divorce or health issues or you've had you couldn't be able to see your family who live down the road there is not one case that's better or worse than another and I hope everybody has at least one thing they're really looking forward to and I am so excited about Europe Oh, well, we're so excited for you. That sounds great. I could see it now. Yeah, it's been a rough year, but there's light at the end of the tunnel and we will all be back in action living soon. We will. Yeah, we will. We're, we're right there. We're, we're getting closer. I see the sun shining behind you and it, it's all good. It's all it good. Is. It's, it's all good. It's time to get going, you know. And, and we've learned a lot, right? We've learned a lot yes. about ourselves and our capabilities and the fact that working we remotely have. can work. So, you know, we have, to, we have to take some positives away from this if it's possible to do. I couldn't agree more. So Jill, it's at this point in the show where we'd love for you to share how our audience can get in touch with you and give us a final thought as we move towards the future. Sure. Anybody can get in touch with me via my LinkedIn profile, Jillian Gorman Round, or via Instagram at Jill G-R, that's Jill with a G, or at Twitter where I'm far less active, but probably should be doing more at Jill Gorman Round. And my final thought is one of great hope. I'm really extraordinarily hopeful 
about our industry and how we will exit this pandemic. I think the past year has been one of immense challenge, but has also brought us really important things to discuss and to address as an industry, diversity, inclusion, the rights of all of the constituent parties and peoples within our industry and those that should have a greater voice. Consumers will come back to beauty. We're really excited about the statistics that we're seeing in countries like Israel, which are fully vaccinated nearly, and we're seeing consumption rates and makeup is back. So I think it's been a really tough year. I think it's been a really important year in so many ways. And I'm very, very hopeful for the future of our industry because at the end of the day, lipstick and mascara and face cream, it's all a dream and it's all beautiful and it should be for everybody. And I think that's a very, very exciting industry to work in. Very beautifully said. This is Abby Wallach signing off for Beauty Is Your Business. I'm here with my amazing co-host, Karen Moon. Hugs and kisses. We'll see you next time. Thank you. This has been Beauty Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com.